and happy new year, right? Happy new decade. Uh, for anyone wondering, yes, I'm aware that there was no year zero, so technically the new decade doesn't start until 2021, but in this case, I'm on the side of our cultural tendency to think in terms of the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. I'm not interested in fighting a two millennium long battle over year zero. They made that mistake 2,000 years ago, so let it go. <laughs> And what a difference a decade can make. Perhaps the past 10 years have been fairly stable for you, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way. Uh, but for many people, including myself, there's been a lot of change in the past 10 years. If you think back over your life in the 2010s, how much of what has happened could you have predicted in advance? Maybe some of you could, let me know, and let's talk about the next decade to come. Uh, some stock tips, right? Uh, in January 2010, I was in the middle of my sixth year as the associate pastor at a liberal Baptist church in Northeast Louisiana. Megan was working in public relations and marketing while completing her master's degree in English. Ten years ago, our plan was for Megan to enter a PhD program and that I would apply for ministry jobs in whatever city we ended up in, but reality had other ideas in mind. As you all now know, I've spent most of the past decade uh, coming into full fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Association and serving this congregation as minister. But that news would have been quite a surprise to my uh, 10 year ago past uh, self. Becoming a UU minister was not even on my radar screen until March of 2012, uh, more than two years into this past decade. I didn't exactly emphasize to uh, your search committee that hired me that I think I'd been to about five UU services before I became your minister. Uh, but I've done okay, I think. Um, and Megan, instead of going the classic ivory tower route, ended up earning an MFA in creative nonfiction at Goucher and has spent most of this decade as an English professor at Frederick Community College. Uh, ten years ago, however, she thought she, she thought she had given up on creative writing and teaching at Community College was not even on her radar, much less all the places she's published in the past decade. What a difference a decade can make. Some of you may can identify with that. Looking back over the past 10 years, many great things have happened. I mean, to name just a few, I completed a doctorate, I ran the Baltimore Marathon, we adopted an additional dog and cat along the way. Uh, but there have been hard times as well in this past decade. My last grandparent died, my mother was treated for breast cancer, Megan and I had a miscarriage, I had half of my thyroid taken out for a papillary carcinoma. I mean, when you start adding it up, it's a lot. Right? The good and the bad, the, the joys and the sorrows. Reflecting on the past 10 years really fills me with both humility and hope. A humble assurance that it is wildly arrogant to presume that any of us fully know what's coming, for good or for ill. And a hopeful trust in all the good that has come, sometimes in the form of love and support, even in the hard times. So ready or not, here we are at the beginning of a new year, at the beginning of a new decade. What will I make? What will you make? What will we make of the new year of 2020, of the new decade? What are we going to make of the 2020s? 
I look forward to us finding out together. For now, when I look back at my notes of potential New Year's topics, at the top of the list actually was the person who wrote that children's book that Jen read. You may have, could, can anybody guess the author? Marie Kondo, right? She wrote Kiki and, Kiki and Jax. Kiki and Jax. Uh, at this time last year, uh, some of you may remember Netflix released Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, and I remember thinking, oh, there's a sermon in that. Uh, <laughs> how many of you watched one or more episodes of that series? Okay, quite a few of you. As you may remember, around this time last year, America was going wild for decluttering and organizing. To take just our own D.C. metro area as an example, during the first week of that show this time last year, donations to Goodwill were up 66% compared to the previous year. And for any of you who have condoed your living space uh, at one point or another, I'd be interested to know, you know, are you keeping it up, more or less? Uh, Megan and I have done a decent job of maintaining tidiness most of the time. Uh, but although Marie Kondo claims that people who use the KonMari method never revert to clutter again, I would say, as with most things, your mileage may vary. <laughs> And although I don't agree with all parts of Marie Kondo's methodology, there is a lot of wisdom in many aspects of her approach. I'll only have time to touch on part of her process, but her, her books or TV show are widely available if you're interested in the details. I'll limit myself really to just one example that is near and dear to my heart, books. And I encourage you to consider how my experience with books might relate to your experiences with books, or clothes, or papers, or tools, or you know what your thing is, right? So make the changes in your mind. Uh, did you see the meme um, circulating uh, last year on the internet that quotes Marie Kondo as saying, ideally keep less than 30 books? People like were so angry. They're like <laughs> raging against the machine. Uh, not only, however, did she never say that, uh, it's also actually a fundamental misunderstanding of her approach. For Kondo, there's no generic limits of books or clothes or tools or papers or any other item. The answer varies with each individual. It's all about what brings you joy and what you have space for. For me, here's the thing. I love books and reading, but I also love living in an 1,100 square foot row house in downtown Frederick. And if I kept all the books I read, our house actually would literally be filled completely with books. And although I do sometimes use ebooks for pleasure reading, I've found that it's, it's actually really pretty necessary for me to write in books and to be able to flip pages back and forth if I'm going to be using them for sermon research or other writing projects. And there was a time in my life when I basically kept every book. I imagined myself sort of having this ever-expanding personal library with shelves upon shelves upon shelves. And I remained fascinated with beautiful photos of libraries around the world. But I reached a turning point a few years ago, and it was as much related to reaching midlife as to any organizational consultant's advice. At a certain point, I had just lived sufficiently long enough to experience how I am in theory versus, I mean, in actuality, how I actually act versus, you know, how I think I act. Uh, so, you know, prior to that point, there were a lot of books that I was keeping around with this intention that I would revisit them someday. But here's what I found out. I started to notice that with rare exception, year after year after year, someday never came. I never revisited those books for the most part. I wonder if that's true for you with those clothes that you think I'm going to wear them someday, or those books for you, or papers that I, I'm going to look at that again someday, right? Or whatever miscellaneous items. 
Every year, there are just huge numbers of new books published that I don't have time to read. So a book really has to be astoundingly excellent for me to even consider realistically revisiting it. Uh, when I could read a book either this year or from the past that I've never read. So I started going through my books quite a few years ago, about once a year, and asking myself the somewhat morbid question, am I going to live long enough to read this book again? <laughs> it turns out actually reflecting on one's mortality is a time-honored spiritual practice across many traditions for getting one's priorities straight, and it, it actually really helps a lot of the time. Uh, if I realize that there's likely not world enough in time for me to revisit a book, I, I just feel much freer. I feel much more easeful when I give a book away. For me, it's usually our annual book sale here in March. So far, this method has been working to maintain a rough correlation between the number of books I own and the available shelf space. And now that I'm a few years into this periodic book purging, I can report that approximately once a year, the past few years, I do find myself looking for a book that I've given away. You know, I suddenly realize that, and I have a brief moment of panic whenever that happens. But I, here's what actually ends up happening. I actually, I don't know that I've actually bought any of those books again. I typically end up thinking, you know what, I don't really need it. I can think of another way to accomplish the same thing or look up just that portion in Google Books or something like that. I wonder if that might be true for you with books or clothes or whatever item that if you gave it away, you'd probably be okay, even if you occasionally found yourself needing it. Conversely, here's the really perverse side of failing to take Marie Kondo's advice on decluttering. Have you ever had the experience of having so much of some kind of stuff? This could be, again, books, clothes, tools, papers, various miscellaneous items. You know what your thing is. Uh, that you're keeping around just in case you need it. It may only be like in your attic or your basement or some room. Um, but then when you actually need that thing, you can't find it because you've got so many other things. So you end up buying another one anyway. And then later after you no longer need it, you do find it. And now you have two of them anyway, which is the whole reason you're keeping it to avoid in the first place. I know. <laughs> so generally Marie Kondo really is right on about there's a real power in cleaning by giving stuff away. It just makes the whole process so much easier. Just get a bunch of stuff out of your house. And storing everything you do keep in a way that is clearly visible. And let's be honest, especially if you've never watched her, just watch one episode or read a little bit of her book. She is a folding ninja. Let's all just be honest. And like the way she can organize your drawers so you can see everything. Uh, I, just, I bow to her folding prowess. Uh, and respect to Megan, who has been consistent for more than a year now in folding her clothes in the condo-approved method. Uh, I haven't even tried that yet. Maybe one day there's just too many books I'd usually rather be reading rather than do that. For now, rather than staying on the surface of Marie Kondo's organizational philosophy, I want to take us one level deeper. If you've watched the Netflix series, you may remember that after introducing herself to new clients, she does something that's maybe unexpected. Uh, one of the first things she does is kneel for about two minutes of silence to center herself, and then she bows to greet the house that they're going to be tidying. You may also remember her physically tapping books to wake them up, or um, say, bidding a kind farewell, this was in that children's book earlier, bidding a kind farewell out loud to items that you're giving away, thanking them. I can't remember whether it comes up in the TV series, but at least in her book, it is explicit that she learned these practices from the Japanese religion of Shintoism. 
She writes that the Japanese people have treated material things with special care since ancient times. The Japanese believed that gods resided not only in natural phenomena. So if you think back to like the Greek and the Romans, their polytheism, they thought there was like a sea god and a um, sky god and things like that. But Shintoists go further. They think that the gods reside in the cooking stove, even down to each individual grain of rice. That's the kami, K-A-M-I, that... Um, the Jen was referring to. But this is the crucial part about all of that. Therefore, they treat all objects with reverence because of that. It's the therefore part, the treating them all with reverence, that I'm really interested in. Here we can begin to see the ways that Marie Kondo's practices of tidying can actually point us to something much more radical underneath. Shintoism, along with the perhaps more familiar practices of paganism, like our own um, covenant of UU pagans here at UUCF, are both part of a larger set of traditions called animism. And the best definition of animism that I've found is that animism are animus are people for whom the world is full of persons, only some of whom are human, and that life is always lived in relationship with others. I'll read that one more time. Animists are people who recognize that the world is full of persons, only some of whom are human, and that life is always lived in relationship with others. Uh, an animist worldview invites us to expand our definition of personhood from humans only to a spectrum that includes all beings on this planet who experience some forms of sentience and subjectivity. I've said a lot more about that in previous um, sermons about Peter Singer's ethics as well as animal rights. I'll, I'll link to that in the manuscript version of the sermon if you're interested in looking into that. For now, I'll say that animist worldviews, it, it doesn't mean, by the way, that you actually have to be a vegetarian or vegan. The societies that have had the most animists are like hunter-gatherers who are very much not vegans. But what they do is have a basic reverence, even for the things they kill and eat. There's a, there's a respect. There's a gratitude. For our current purposes, I'll put it this way. We are potentially missing out if we dismiss animism too quickly as a so-called primitive, archaic worldview that has nothing for us. That they, oh, they literally believe that a god's in everything, down to each single grain of rice. What's more interesting, though, in contemporary animism at its best is the cultivation, again, of authentic reverence for all aspects of life, certainly still including ourselves as humans and our fellow human beings, but also a reverence, this felt sense of relationship with animal life, with plant life, with all items in our house, with even the house itself. That sort of shift is really radical, and I think it's actually worth consideration here at the beginning of a new decade. If we turn back the clock briefly to the 1980s, that was when you find uh, an ecologist coining the term Anthropocene, which is really similar to the word anthropology. It's highlighting the ways that we humans have created a new geologic time period in which we are the dominant force shaping the planet. Anthropocene literally means the age of the humans, and one of the most recent results of that worldview is the horrifying climate catastrophe of these wildfires sweeping Australia. The more I think about it, the less silly and the more wise it seems to me to watch Marie Kondo kneel and bow to greet her house, to tap books to wake them up, or to speak kindly to close. Some of these practices or something like them might be well worth taking on, whatever helps cultivate a felt sense of reverence and relationship toward all of life in this remarkable planet on which we find ourselves.
From a UU perspective, an animism for the 21st century might look like a unified version of our first and seventh principle. Instead of just saying that we are about the respecting the inherent worth and dignity of every person, what if we started saying that we respect the inherent worth and dignity of the interdependent web of existence of which we are a part? We respect the interdependent web of existence for which we are a part. I think that would be a really radical starting point for a 21st century Unitarian Universalism. It turns out that Marie Kondo, or at least the worldview that shaped her, might be a lot deeper than is sometimes acknowledged. Indeed, another way of describing this shift we've been exploring is the shift from a shallow ecology to a deep ecology. A shallow ecology is human-centered. It looks at the world and only considers it from a human perspective. So it says, oh, we got to save the rainforest because it might have a cure for cancer, right? And we humans need that. That's a good reason. If it gets you there, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> we should reduce carbon emissions to prevent our human cities from being flooded by climate change. Okay, if that gets you there, it's okay. But there's more. A deep ecology is ecocentric. We humans are a part but we become one among many factors in addition to the communities, the needs, the desires, the rights of all the other aspects of the environment that are non-human. A depth ecology invites a preservation of ecosystems because they are diverse and important and valuable in their own right for themselves. And from a scientific perspective, let me hasten to add, a deep ecology is deeply Darwinian. After all, one of the core insights of Darwin's theory of common descent is that we humans are not special, a little lower than the angels, magically created, you know, two Hebrew-speaking humans and a talking snake, right? So, I mean, that's, that's not what it's about. In the great tree of life, we humans are one among many species within the larger animal kingdom. We are deeply interdependent with the other ecosystems of which we are a part. As the indigenous activist Winona LaDuke has said, environmentalism, if you think about it, it's actually kind of a strange term that we needed at all. She says, I think it's really about rediscovering your humanity and how your humanity relates to life. Think about that. Environmentalism, why do, why do we even need to raise people's consciousness about it? It's just about realizing what it means to be human and what it means to be human is being an animal a really interesting animal, but an animal that is deeply part of the animal kingdom. If we as a species were ever to really grasp that insight in a deeply Darwinian way, in a deeply ecological way, I think we would begin to find ourselves on a much more sustainable path for this decade and centuries to come. For now, as each of you continues to reflect on what you feel called to let go of, Marie Kondo style, for this new year, you know, this new decade, to let go of just things and ways of being in the world that just aren't serving you anymore. So as you think, what is that for you? And what that might free up space and time for, for you to take on, that might transform your life, that might help transform our world. Let's rise and body your spirit and your teal hymnals. Let's sing Fire of Commitment, number 128.